Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. In some parts of the country, August marks the beginning of the school year, but not everywhere. At a campground in upstate New York, 100 kids from across the country arrived with flashlights, bug spray, and sleeping bags, leaving their cell phones and the creature comforts of home to attend the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp, located on the outskirts of Rochester. According to historians and camp organizers, it is one of the first overnight Hindu camps, beginning first as a retreat at an ashram in the 1970s. That was at the Sivananda Yoga Camp in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, and it was led by a woman, Swami Lakshmi Devi. It's a fascinating story, but one today's campers don't know much about. It started way before my time. So when it first started, uh, the camp was very small. They slept in tents. Um, and Devi Barvati, who's our spiritual leader, actually brought the camp to Rochester. Eventually, they built cabins and they built a bathhouse, and that's when camp grew and it became two sessions. That is Radhika Amin. She was the director of the first of those two sessions. A little later in the program, we'll hear from Devi Parvati, the camp's spiritual director, to learn more about the camp's uniquely American origin story. But first, my conversation with Radhika Amin, and it begins with the biggest challenge facing overnight camps this summer managing the risks of COVID-19. Did you feel like you were prepared? Did you feel like you had enough training, especially in the era of COVID? Like, how did you feel and get ready for this camp? Mm -hmm. I would say yes and no. I think what makes me feel most prepared is all the years of experience. Um, Every director that I've seen at camp has kind of taken a different path or a different avenue of how they want to lead camp. So a lot of it in the end is kind of up to me. And I use the experience of what I enjoyed as a camper to decide when I made decisions about what activities we would do or what would be best for the camp. Um, In terms of COVID, it was definitely really, really difficult. But what's really awesome about camp is there is a board of older adults who've been involved in camp for so long, including like a medical doctor that wrote up guidelines for us and talked us through everything that we had to make sure we did safely. Um, And so we have retreats before camp starts with these individuals and with the rest of my staff to discuss how we're going to implement camp. Did you insist that anyone who was over the age of 12 um, who was coming to the camp have to be vaccinated? Was that a requirement? We actually did not do that. No. And and did you have everyone provide tests? Like, how did you make sure that the camp itself didn't become a super spreader event? Yes, there were very, very strict guidelines. So we did have everyone get tested three days before. Um, we did another COVID test on site halfway through camp. Um, and then in terms of like spreading, we basically organized camp in cohorts. So kids only ever interacted with their own age group this year, which is Kind of sad because when I grew up, like one of the best things was interacting with the older kids when you were little. But this year, that's just like how it had to be for the safety of the campers. Um, And unvaccinated kids and vaccinated kids had different distancing rules. Um, 
like all tables were marked in a certain way so that kids were the right distance when they were eating um, and there were masks at all times. So it definitely was a different kind of camp this year Um, and it wasn't easy, but it worked out well. Did the kids all agree? Were they pretty compliant? I mean, sometimes behavior and acting out can happen when you get a bunch of kids together, (laughs) especially after almost 18 months of being in lockdown. For a lot of kids in the country last year, there weren't camps happening. So I'm curious, were the kids taking it seriously? Yeah, they actually were. Um, I guess maybe because they've been so used to it, even at school and stuff. And What was important is that us as staff and all of the camp counselors were also wearing their masks and enforcing the same rules for themselves. So they looked up to these counselors, and if they saw them doing it, they generally did it too. So tell us a little bit about what going to a Hindu heritage summer camp looks like. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because it's actually really hard to describe it because the experience is like what matters most. I would say it's very like religious based in the morning in the sense that it opens your eyes to like puja, we do chanting, we do philosophy. Um, and then towards the end of the day is just so many fun activities that are still rooted in Hinduism. Like we'll do India Day where the kids learn about culture or we'll do like a very special Devi puja, which is an elaborate thing where we dress up in Indian clothes. But what makes it summer camp is just the fact that like We're with our best friends that are usually people from all over the country that you don't even know. And you're experiencing all of these things and all these activities with them, which at least for me was like what camp was about. So your camp of 100 people, you had kids from all over the country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes even outside. And even outside the country. And I imagine there are not that many Hindu overnight summer camps in the United States. Yeah, this is definitely like the biggest one that I know of. Would you mind describing a little bit of your first experience going to camp and what your faith practice was like when you first arrived with your backpack and your sleeping bag? (laughs) Um, Yeah, when I first came to camp, um, I definitely knew I was religious in the sense that my parents took me to the temple very often. Um, I went to Sunday school, which was like learning about Hinduism, and I learned about our prayers. But when I got to camp, it was so different because everyone there had varying levels of beliefs and how devout they were. Um, So just talking to everyone and seeing all the different viewpoints was so interesting for me and honestly a little bit scary, I would say. In what way? How how is that scary? I'm I'm curious. Yeah, I think it's scary because where I grew up, there was a very certain viewpoint on things like my parents taught me Hinduism in a certain way. And it's like scary, exciting to see that there's kids with so many different beliefs that are also Hindu. So it's not like there's just one path that I'm in for the rest of my life or that I need to follow. There's just so many options out there. Did that experience of encountering diverse practices with your own faith tradition, is that something that has influenced or shaped your own practice now as you reflect back as a 20-year-old? Yeah, definitely. I think... I've become someone who's less about the actual prayers or like making the actual offerings. And I really enjoy Hindu philosophy in the sense that Hinduism is about doing what's right. And that like when you do good things, good things generally will happen. And if you do bad things, that's like the bad energy that you're spreading and will eventually come back to you. It sounds like you're describing some of those principles of dharma and karma. Am I am Mm -hmm. I hearing that correctly? Yeah, exactly. 
I'm curious what your day looks like. The younger kids get to wake up bright and early at like 6.30 a.m. where they start showering and brushing their teeth. And then the older cabins go and get ready. And they start off their day doing morning rotations where they either do yoga or they do um, mindful practices during something called Peaceful Journey. Or they'll do move gymnastics where they get to dance and some counselors teach them some routines. So we all get into a really large circle and we sing Rise and Shine. Can you sing me the song? Yeah, it's like they came on in twosies and threesies. It's like describing Noah's Ark and all the um, animals coming on. I don't know too much about it, but that's what it's about. Breakfast is so much fun because we always play music. We like call up random campers to tell us some jokes or tell us about their day and the rest of the kids are just talking with each other and eating food which is usually delicious in the morning all right guys start heading to your seats all right it's time for our morning prayer one thing that we do is we always say a prayer before we eat let's start with one powerful aim In Hindu culture, we usually consider food to have God or like life in it. So we're thanking God for giving us this food and allowing us to eat it. And then after breakfast, are there any rituals or group practices that you all do together? So we do puja, which is basically doing religious offerings to an idol. Um, the idol can be a different god every day based on what puja we're doing. And some of the campers get to come up every day and do the actual offerings while me and the assistant directors kind of say the chants and say the prayers and the campers sing along with us if they know it. I'm curious, for some of the campers, are they seasoned participants in the puja or for some of them, is it is it a new experience? No, I would say it's probably a new experience for more than not. It's funny and like cute to see them get so excited because they've never done this before. And when they get to come up and offer the rice and the flowers, like they see it as such a fun activity and it opens their eyes to like a different kind of Hindu practice where you're doing the actual physical offerings and the singing and a very traditional practice. When you take a step back and you look at who's at camp, are there any groups or any particular practices that are in the majority or is it something different? I don't think I found a majority, to be honest. I think every kid has had such a different upbringing and a lot of it comes from how religious their parents are and what they grew up with. Um, But every kid has always had varying beliefs. Like there's so many different prayers that every kid usually knows different prayers. So I would say it's all very diverse. The camp counselors make it so evident that they themselves don't always know what's happening. 
even me, I'll be like, oh, I had no idea how to do this when I was a camper. You mentioned that there's also chanting. Can you describe that? Yeah. So chanting class, they get to split up in levels, usually based on how many years they've been coming to camp. Um, And we teach them shlokas, which are Sanskrit, like hymns and chants and prayers. Um, And they get to be in a little group with a camp counselor who's kind of breaking up the words for them and teaching them how to say them. Um, There's definitely kids that are more into it than others, but eventually they all like really get into it because they start to chant really loudly together and they like find the rhythm together. There's so much energy in the place, not like just from the fact that these hymns are about energy and it's there's energy in the words, but it's so cool that every single kid who came in not knowing these prayers is now chanting them really loudly and they're all singing them together. Can I ask you to chant one for us? Yeah. But um, no pressure, say, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I can say a power mantra that goes like, Om Bhur Bhuva Suvaha Tatsavitur Varenyam Bargo Deva Siddhimahi Diyoyona Prachodayata. Thank you, Radhika. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. <laughs> of course. Do you have friends that you stay in touch with? I know, obviously, look, you went to camp, you became a counselor, you became a senior counselor, now you're a director. Do you plan to go back? Do you plan to do this again as a director? No, I think director is one of those things where it's now time to pass it on to hopefully the next generation who will take it even further. But I'll definitely be back volunteering and visiting at camp. Mm. Radhika, do you have friends that you've stayed in touch with from camp? Yes, I definitely do. I feel like I'm bonded to these people in a really different way, um, where we all have a very intense shared experience. Um, And there's a lot of activities at camp that bring you really close together. Um, And I talk to them all the time. We usually try to have a reunion outside of camp if we can. Um, And they'll always mean a lot to me. Do you think they'll be your lifelong friends? Yeah, I think there's certain people from camp that I will always be friends with. Um, Even if we don't always talk, I know that they're there for me. How does your identity, um, your your faith identity, your spiritual identity, how does it express itself? What does it look like now as a 20-year-old? I think when I grew up, I did a lot of the physical things. Like I was offering things to our home temple and I was going to the actual temple nearby. And now I just really, really believe in doing the right thing. And I think that's because of camp and our philosophy classes. And dharma and karma are two things that I follow pretty intensively in my life. Um, And I realized at camp that I don't need to always be doing like physical offerings or chanting all the time to be a Hindu and to be a good person. It's more about my own core beliefs and knowing that God is everywhere around me and that if I do the right thing, um, the right thing will eventually happen for me too. I want to ask you one last question. If you have kids, do you plan to send them to camp? A hundred percent, yes. I think every kid should go to summer camp. Radhika Amin served as the director of the first session of the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp in Rochester, New York. She's a rising senior at Case Western University in Ohio. Coming up, my conversation with the founder and the spiritual leader of the Hindu Heritage Camp, Devi Parvati. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Hello. Hi. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Good. So now this is, um, what is it that you're publishing? Is it an article? Is it a... No, it's a radio radio? story. It's radio. It's radio. Okay. So we'll be on the radio together. Is that all right? Okay. So it's live. No, no, we're not live. I don't think I can pull off live, to be honest. I don't know. We'll, We'll have to, one day I'll have to try that. Can I introduce myself to you so you understand who you're talking to here? <laughs> sure. That's <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> I thought so. I bet you're like, wait, who are you and why are you calling me? <laughs> My name's Umbreen Khan. I'm the host of a public radio show called Inspired, and we explore beliefs that shape our world. And this week we're working on an episode about summer camps and... I had a great conversation with Radhika Amin, and she's just so full of enthusiasm and so interesting to hear how the camp really shaped the way she thinks about herself and her identity and her sense of responsibility to creating that experience for younger campers now. It it was an interesting conversation and one that just raised so many more questions for me. And when I asked her the history... She said it started started way before my time. So when it first started, uh, the camp was very small. They slept in tents. um, And Devi Parvati, who's our spiritual leader, actually brought the camp to Rochester. And she mentioned you. All right. Let me ask you the question. Okay. What and how did you come up with the idea for the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp? But before we get there, tell me your story. How did you come to be the spiritual advisor for this particular community? Yes, yeah, so they're kind of intertwined. Um, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was very homogenous at the time. You know, hardly any Indian community or Muslim community or any other community besides Judeo-Christian, really. And um, so I was searching my whole life, really. I was brought up in a Jewish household that wasn't very Jewish. So there wasn't that kind of uh, deep spiritual experience in my family. 
But for me, it was definitely there. Sitting on the front porch of my house when I was, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, staring at the stars and having uh, spiritual experiences. As I went to school and went to college, I was taking courses in education and also languages because I've always felt like I was a world citizen and it wasn't just living in one small location. I went to Spain uh, and studied abroad and ended up doing that for two years, uh, studying the philosophy with one of the teachers there in Madrid and had an experience of being exposed to Hindu philosophy or Vedic philosophy through Spanish, through one of the authors and philosophers of the time, the generation of 98, they called him. His name was uh, Ortega y Gasset, and he published books in Spanish about India. And I was just blown away. I said, I want more of this. I love this. This is really uh, is food for my soul. So when I came back, I started looking for uh, more spiritual experiences and more uh, information about this and was reading books on yoga and uh, philosophy, and I started taking yoga classes. And when was this? Put us on the timetable. This was the early uh, the early 70s. Ah, so this is the time when yoga started to really be yes. brought to the United States and people were studying with the gurus who introduced Americans to yoga. Yes, exactly. There weren't classes in the community. You had to go to a retreat center. You had to go to an ashram and immerse yourself into a yogic experience and take yoga that way. You know, there were just very few places where you could learn it. So I had an exposure to yoga uh, when I was teaching school, and and I was uh, working in um, New Brunswick, New Jersey, teaching school in New Brunswick. I was a young fellow, and so he had a retreat going on. So if anyone wants to go, you can ride up with me. You can have a you know a nice long weekend experience. And I don't know what impelled me, but I said yes. And so I went, and my feeling about it was like I had stepped on an escalator. And the escalator was going up and up and up, and I had to follow it. There was no way of getting off the escalator. I just took one step at a time, one step at a time, the spirituality and and uh, soul opening was happening, and I just went with the flow because I knew it was the right thing to do. My intuition, my inner knowing said, this is what I want, this is what I need. And so I went to this uh, this retreat center in Pennsylvania and totally fell in love with it. I felt like I walked out the door into a past life. It was. It felt so familiar to me, like I had been there before, I had done these things. It was just feeding my soul, and I said, wow, you know. So I started going up to this retreat center on long weekends and whenever, and by the time it got to summer, I said, I'm going up for the summer, and I never went back. <laughs> <laughs> I said... This is what I want. You know, this is what I want. I love teaching Spanish. It's wonderful. But this is feeding my soul. This I have to do. And so I gave up everything, packed my belongings in my car, and went to live in this little retreat center in Pennsylvania, in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. How did you communicate with your family? How did your loved ones and and your (laughs) relation, like, how do they react to this? This is a Not well. (laughs) Not well. Um, You know, it was like, actually, it was at the time when there was a lot of, uh, stuff happening in the world about cults. So my family was really scared. They thought I just joined a cult and that it was, uh, 
you know, going to take me somewhere they didn't want. And uh, they, so they really uh, reacted poorly. And for a while there, I had to say to them, listen, um, if you're going to continually berate me and get me into this place of you want me to leave, 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 I'm going to have to just cut off for a while from you. So for about a year, I didn't talk to them. Oh, wow. So that must have been hard for everybody, though. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a difficult decision, but I did. And then gradually we reconnected and, you know, uh, healed the relationship and all of that. But it, it was a difficult decision for them and for me as well. And I ended up staying in this ashram retreat for 18 years. For 18 years. And yeah. so who was the leader of the ashram retreat? So the leader of this ashram was a woman, Swami, a woman guru. And her name was Swami Lakshmi Devi. She was a resident of New York City. And her story was absolutely amazing. She had so many different um, abilities. And yet she was also a mother. She had a child. She had a relationship, her her husband. Uh, But her husband was very liberal with her, so she could do whatever she wanted. And she, because she was having these visions of uh, a Swami from India who had passed on, his name was Swami Shivananda, who was very prolific in bringing yoga to the West. And there were several Swamis living in New York City that were his traditions. And so Swami Lakshmi decided she had to go check it out. And she uh, started going to one of the uh, yoga centers, the Shivananda Yoga Center in in, uh, downtown, I think it was, New York City. And she was having visions of this Swami who she'd never met, who had already um, left his body. Uh, And she shared this vision with the Swamiji's, and they sort of went, what? Yeah, I have so many questions. I have so many (laughs) questions. I mean, so she she encounters them, and she has these stories and these visions that she's sharing with them. And and how do they respond to her? Well, um, they weren't extremely happy about it, you know, because I think they were a little jealous, actually, from what I understand from the story. But, um, you know, she's continued to be a part of the going to that organization. She never took any big roles with that. But one of the visions that she had of Swami Shivananda told her to start her own place, to start a, a retreat center. And so she listened and followed this uh, this vision and intuition. And her husband actually helped her buy a little retreat center, and she built it up gradually uh, and started advertising in... Uh, New York Times and in other magazines. And this is the time of flower children, okay? This is the late 60s. Young people started coming from New York and from everywhere because they wanted to experience yoga. They wanted to experience a spiritual lifestyle and move away from the uh, classical uh, religious background. And uh, so more and more people started coming. When I got there, it was 1970. I think, and I was 25. So I had had, uh, I don't know, five or six years of experience teaching school and living in the East Coast, and I was miserable. (laughs) I knew innately that there was something I was supposed to be doing. Mm. So you were 25, and you stayed at the ashram for, it sounds like, 18 years. Am I getting that? Yes. In 1976, after I'd been there for three years. Uh, the Indian community started to grow. And so the family started to see these ads about this retreat in the Poconos. And uh, so they started coming to the retreat. And we had a visiting Swamiji 
staying with us for six months or so that Swami Lakshmi had met and invited to come and do some classes and teach and everything. So the families were interested to meet him, and they'd come out and do these weekend programs. And so we started to really get connected to the what what I call the, the root of yoga. You know, yoga was taught in the West very much as a physical thing with some philosophy behind it. So when they came to our ashram, we were teaching the philosophy as well. So the Indian community came to learn with us. So one family came that had three daughters. They were from New Brunswick, I think. They had three daughters. They were from uh, in India, from the south part of India. And they came for this weekend retreat. And the three daughters had such a great time participating in all the programs. They'd just follow along with everything that all of the the people who were living in the ashram and the visitors were doing. One of them said, can she stay? She wanted to stay. And there was another week where there were two other young boys who also had come, their parents, and they decided to stay for a week. And she wanted to stay and continue to experience this uh, wonderful atmosphere. So her family let her stay. And after a week, her older sister came also. They went home. And the next year, through friends and people that they knew, 35 youngsters showed up. Wow. Viral marketing. (laughs) Yeah. It it evolved organically. The Hindu Heritage Summer Camp organically evolved from these youngsters studying yoga, meditation, the Bhagavad Gita, the philosophy of India, and the wonderful communal environment that was there. We had we were doing farming. We had some animals. It was just a beautiful environment, and they were participating in everything. After a couple of years, we had four sessions of two weeks sleepaway camp, and Hindu Heritage Summer Camp was going full, full force. Wow. And so the Swamis uh, and the uh, renunciates who were living in the ashram were teaching these classes and working with the children, and it just organically grew from there. As we're talking, they're in their second session. Yes, and it's been 45 years for me participating and working and forming and uh, uh, expanding the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp Program. I wasn't the only one who began it, but I'm the only one that's left from the ashram experience who have uh, taken it on as my my seva, my, my service. I love it. I love working with the children. I was a teacher, so it's like natural to me. I love to chant and worked with Sanskrit, so I was integral in developing the rituals and pujas uh, and teaching the Sanskrit and the philosophy classes. I want to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, I know that you teach the chanting, and could I could I implore you to do one? Sure. Suvaha Tatsavitur Vare Enyam Bhargo Devasya Dhimahi Dio Yonaf Prachodayatu. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Did you ever get any criticism or pushback from the I community? have from some 
Yeah, from some people in the communities I have had, uh, you know, some people say, who are you to do this, you know? But the minute I start to talk to them and I talk about past lives, I mean, for me, this is a total past life experience brought forward into this lifetime. And they understand that. So it's mostly the very radical, close-minded group of people. There are some sects in Hinduism that that's all there is. There is nothing else but the way I believe. And they're, they're fine to believe that way. But mostly my experience has been very positive. And families would uh, bring their children and go, man, I don't, how, I don't know how you do this. I mean, it's just amazing. Here you are brought up in this country, and yet you know more than I have ever learned about Hinduism. How is that possible? If I'm dressed in Indian garb and I'm walking down the street, sometimes people in, in this country will <laughs> give me a look and going, what is that? <laughs> you know, I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. When you look back on your camp experience, has it evolved the way that you envisioned it would? Um, okay, what I'm going to say is I feel like I'm a bridge between East and West. I'm American-born. I am completely white. <laughs> and I started working with the Indian community, you know, when I was 25, 26 years old. And at the time, the, the community was very small, and there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of issues within the community. Kids would come to camp, and they were the only Indian family in their entire town. Yeah. You know, and so they're trying to explain to their classmates what it is to be Hindu, and they can't. Right. We had children, we had children that said that they were Spanish, and the families would come here from India, and they'd work here, and they'd raise their children, but they had no idea about how to raise their kids because they were so Western oriented towards learning to be doctors and lawyers and coming and studying at the universities here that they left all the traditional knowledge of their past, a lot of them did, and didn't know anything about their heritage. So these children are growing up asking their parents, why do you do this? Why is it that? What is the meaning? of Who's Krishna? What is going on? And they're asking these parents all these questions and they had no answers. So they looked around to find a camp, and they found us. And so for us, it was a, a, a wonderful experience of answering these questions for these youngsters and giving them a sense of belonging and a sense of understanding their roots and their heritage. Now we're in the third generation of camp, and the parents who were campers are now bringing their children to camp. And it's as fulfilling as it ever was. It's evolving. I mean, education is different today. The kids' likes are different today, but they still need a connection to their roots. Hmm. And so when I see young people like Radhika and the, the directors of camp who've been coming to camp for 10 years, learning and growing and, you know, absorbing their, their heritage, when I see them taking on the responsibilities of being directors and being the role models for their younger campers, it's beautiful. And it doesn't stop with camp. I'm hoping that all these youngsters who come through our programs go out there and become leaders that can bridge the gap and start to uh, unify the world today because we need it so badly. Yeah. And I think that they have a presence of mind. They have a vision, a world vision, a vision of inclusivity that we so badly need right now. How do you identify yourself, your spiritual identity? Big question. <laughs> so for me, the reason that I love this tradition so much, and I say Hindu loosely because that's really not the term. 
that uh, was the original term for this tradition. But for me, anyway, this is such an open-ended tradition. It is a philosophy that has evolved over thousands and thousands of years. It is totally inclusive. You can be any religion and be part of and understand and enjoy this tradition. It is not closed at all. There was no beginning. It wasn't like one person founded this religion. It was a, a way of life that has evolved, and the spirituality has come from sages and uh, renunciates living in the forest, meditating and having these truths come to them, which they in turn taught to their students and passed on from word of mouth for thousands of years until finally it was begun to be written down. And it has evolved over time. I mean, I feel like I am Hindu, but I'm all religions because it is so open in it and says that God is everywhere. God is form and formless. Everything in the universe is this God, everything. And so physics and religion come together in Hinduism. The understanding that God is everywhere and in everything. I can be a Christian and be part of this. I can be Jewish and be part of this. And I am. I feel like I'm all religions because reality is it's not a religion. It is a spiritual transcendent experience that all people can arrive at if they're open-minded and they move into the what we call the spiritual or the mystical understandings of their religion. Mm. And so I'm a mystic. I'm not just Hindu, I'm a mystic. And for me, part of the experience that I have is also a connection with the goddess. Because God is not just male. God is male-female. We're all male-female. We all have within us this understanding of what it is to be a male, what it is to be female. And so in Indian tradition also, the goddess is a huge tradition there. They have always recognized the divinity of the Divine Mother. And so I connect very much with that. So that's part of my belief. Mm. But you can be Hindu and not have that belief. The thing is, you can believe so many different things within Hinduism and still call yourself Hindu. Right, right. And I love that. Before we go, tell us about your name. I didn't choose it. Um, there's two parts to it. When I lived in the ashram and Swami Lakshmi Devi, one of the things that she did, which was very unique in terms of a yoga ashram, was because of her tradition with Swami Shivananda, he believed that anyone who wanted to take sannyas, to take renunciation, should do so. And so she would, when students were studying with her at a certain point, she would give them a spiritual name and or even a title, which at that point we were calling ourselves Swami, which means renunciate or like a monk or nun. In our tradition, so for a long time, my name was Swami Parvati Devi Ashram, which was a spiritual monastic name. And uh, one of the gurus that we had connected with in India and were working with, even with developing the camp, because he totally gave blessings for the camp and what we're doing, when our that particular guruji died, uh, his, his disciple took over, and his disciple was pretty much, uh, you know, uh, Sanskrit scholar and very analytical and not as mystical as and spiritually oriented. And he, on one of the visits to India that I had, he said, um, you know, a lot of people are asking me, what is this about a woman swami? We don't have women swamis in our order. 
can I call you something else? And I said, sure. He said, I'll call you Devi Parvati. <laughs> so the Devi part means goddess, but it's also, it means goddess of light. And uh, Parvati was given to me by Swami Lakshmi. She would go into meditation and decide what the spiritual underpinnings of this person is and how it would help her and also give to the world an understanding of who she is just through the name. So she named me Parvati, which is the name of the goddess, who is the mother goddess, who brings harmony in the midst of diversity and then in the midst of uh, chaos. So I am Devi Parvati. So I am the bringer of light and harmony in the midst of chaos. Radhika Amin is a rising senior at Case Western University in Ohio. She led the first session of the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp in Rochester, New York. Devi Parvati is the spiritual director and an early founder of the Hindu Heritage Summer Camp. She lives on Vancouver Island in the Canadian province of British Columbia. Much has changed since 1968, when Swami Lakshmi Devi purchased 38 acres in the Poconos to open the Sivananda Yoga Camp and Ashram in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Today, there are a number of supplementary education programs and day camps offering Hindu education. Coming up, Dr. Shana Sippy offers context and insights on the growth of Hindu religious education. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Ambreen Khan. We just heard the story of Devi Parvati's journey into the ashram in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, and then to Rochester, New York. In researching this story, I found a 1973 article in the New York Times Digital Archives. It was describing the ashram, Swami Lakshmi Devi, and a typical day at a retreat which attracted Americans curious about yoga, gurus, and New Age spirituality. In the 1980s, the focus of the ashram began to shift to meet the needs of a growing community of immigrant families from South Asia looking for both Hindu culture and community. To put the ashram's evolution into context and learn a little bit more about camping, I spoke to religion professor and researcher Dr. Shauna Sippy. The very earliest camps were created in the late 1800s, really a way for young boys to experience nature and leave the city. And it was during the rise of industrialization. Camps grew as a phenomenon throughout the early 20th century. The American Camp Association was founded in 1910 and religious camps emerged in large numbers in the 1920s and 30s. Minorities and immigrant groups began to create their own camps in the 20s and 30s as a way to create more immersive environments and to allow for the transmission of culture. We don't actually see the rise of anything that we could call Hindu camping until the mid to late 1980s and really not until the 1990s. 
Dr. Sippy is an assistant professor of religion at Center College in Danville, Kentucky, and she also co-directs Religions Minnesota. From her research, she estimates that 14,000 kids attended some form of Hindu summer camp, but clarifies it's a mix of programs. The designation Hindu camping refers to a broad range of phenomenon from one to four week, you know, overnight camps or summer long day camps or one week uh, day camps or retreats. So when I say 14,000, I'm talking about all those different things. She also points out that camps have different affiliations. Most Hindu camps began and still are day camps. So the vast majority of them are are by no means um, overnight camps in the ways that we might uh, we might think about them. And the thing to sort of understand about Hindu camps is that they have been very small scale for the most part, connected to a local mandir, a local Hindu temple. But in other cases, they have been connected to larger global Hindu umbrella organizations that have transnational connections and agendas and ties. Dr. Sippy's interest in the formation of identity will be detailed in a forthcoming book to be published by New York University Press, Diasporic Desires, Making Hindus and the Cultivation of Longing. It will include research on the powerful role camps and weekend schools have in transmitting identity and the impact that has more broadly on our culture. She explains what draws her to this area of work. For me, one of the things that's most interesting about studying this and thinking about this is that people somehow come to understand themselves and their place in the world, right? What we often call identity. And and many people have heard the concept of intersectionality, that none of us can be defined by a single thing, like race, religion, gender, sexuality. But there's aspects of people's identity that can be particularly powerful, right? Communities and contexts in which they feel at home, as though they belong. And a sense of belonging is a really powerful and sometimes uh, a very beautiful thing. But the very things that make us connect with some people and not with others, make us feel love and affinities are often the same things that divide us from other people. So if I'm connected to these people, then I'm not those people. And my interest in camps and, and what I think happens in camps and what's distinctive about them is that they're part of sort of a larger process that helps us think about how people and, you know, children are both made passively into the subjects that they are made into the people who identify in particular ways um, and how we're made passively by the environments that we're put in, but also how children and adults are actively making themselves and others. And camps are really one of those sites where you go in and you have a connection. And so, even even non-religious camps and non-cultural camps have their own culture, right? They have special songs, they have special cheers. You know, you come back, you wear that, you have special t-shirts, you play games, you you have this sense of camaraderie that's developed. And that's part of what camp, you know, has traditionally done. It sort of makes this kind of a sort of internal culture where people start to identify with it. And you add culture or religion into the mix, you are then transmitting a whole host of other things. Camp becomes a space and a way where you can control bodies, right? Where you can actually make people do what you want them to do that you can't do if you're seeing them once a week for two hours, right? At, at Hindu Sunday school. I think that's a really important thing. I also think 
that it's worth understanding that from the very beginning, we're always about nature and getting away or, you know, giving children an opportunity to live with other children and play. Um, They've never only been about having fun and playing games. Um, And they've always been places where morals and ideologies and traditions are passed down and also where political agendas are furthered. So camps um, have the ability, though, to do that work differently than we would think about in a normal sort of conventional classroom. I want to make it clear that even when something is very fun, right, it doesn't mean that there aren't morals and messages and ideologies that are being transmitted. Those will develop a new generation of of kids who have a sort of sensibility that's different and a sense of belonging that's different. Dr. Shauna Sippy is an assistant professor of religion at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She's the author of a forthcoming book, Diasporic Desires, Making Hindus and the Cultivation of Longing by New York University Press. This week's conversations about summer camp brought back memories of my own, and I wonder if you have some experiences and memories that you would like to share. We're going to work on a couple more shows, taking a closer look at the emerging trends happening at faith camps, and I would love to hear your experiences. Send a voice memo on your experience or reflections to amber at interfaithradio.org. That's amber at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. Friends, the pandemic is once again challenging communities in our country and around the world. I encourage you to get vaccinated to protect yourself, to protect those you love, and to protect your neighbor, especially the vulnerable ones. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, MC Yogi for our theme music, and Maureen Fiedler, our founder. If you have any thoughts or questions after listening to this week's show, send me an email. I would love to hear from you. Again, that's amber at interfaithradio.org. And if you want to take another listen, share this conversation or subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find us. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well. And I'll see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Khan.